This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. Joining me again is Peter Land for our fifth episode on Pope Francis' Let Us Dream. So if you haven't uh, listened to the earlier episodes, please uh, do that so this will make a little more sense. And here we're moving into uh, chapter two. So glad to have you back, Peter, to continue this discussion. Thanks, Malcolm. It's great to be back with you. It's we, It took us four episodes, huh, to get through the first chapter. But that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think the first episode and a half, if I remember right, were on the introduction. So actually, we've covered something like two chapters in four episodes, so it's not, not too bad. We're not moving too slow. No, okay. I don't think so. I think, and besides, there's so much in this book, you know. Uh, we probably could do even more episodes per chapter if we wanted to. <laughs> You're right. There's a lot to unpack. Really, just like on segments, on thoughts and ideas, we could just be doing whole episodes. Anyway, here at the beginning of chapter two, um, you know, in chapter one, he talked about, you know, seeing the signs of the times, being aware, uh, because without seeing what's going on, we can't know what the Lord is calling us to. And then he talks about once we've seen... Um, before we can act in response to what we see, we have to discern to make sure our actions are going to be in accordance with God's will. And he says, you know, the time of trial and turbulence we're in is, is a time of distinguishing which paths to take in this kind of discernment. And then he says that to discern properly, we need um, silent reflection and uh, prayer and he says we need to cultivate a dialogue in community that can hold us and allow us to dream. And that's an interesting point because I think too often when we talk about individual discernment or the private conscience, uh, it's used as something to resist or reject the communal teaching of the church. Um, and obviously Pope Francis sees dialogue as a ver- dialogue and discernment as very communal um, actions. So just be interesting. What are your thoughts on, you know, how does the individual conscience that's discerning, how does that interact with this, these kind of rules and guidelines that the church sets out? Well, so much of our growth as a human person, Malcolm, at at least personally, but I think upon reflection, it it really applies to all of us that, um, growth in, uh, formation and our conscience it happens through a process of formation, which always includes a community. It always includes a history, includes other people and um, feedback, uh, those who have gone before us. I mean, that's so much of what we've, we've inherited as a church people, you know, the, the saints, the doctors of the church, the apostles, all tracing them back, all tracing back to Jesus himself who also was building upon a previous tradition that God had um, ordained through Israel. So almost none of us can really claim that um, we've we formed ourselves or that we've come to conclusions about truth or reality or about what is right and, and wrong on our own. That process is always something that's happening with other people in conversation, um, you know, as, as children, we're being taught and we're learning through the example and through the words of our parents, um, through observing our, our siblings and maybe other people in a, in a healthy, hopefully a healthy community context. We go to school and we, we learn in addition what is right from our teachers 
there are rules to be observed, you know, there's etiquette. Um, so I think that's a, a great analogy for what, what um, Pope Francis is bringing up, you know, in terms of discernment is that um, we learn to see and we learn to choose what is right through um, dialogue and interaction with others. Again, it kind of points out the, the danger and isolation that the world is moving towards. You know, an isol the isolated conscience, I think, is something that a term that Pope Francis had used in the past in this book, um, because that isolated conscience is much more vulnerable to a narrowness and to a blindness, to deception. But other people kind of keep us accountable and in check and help us to see beyond ourselves. You know, our, our view is necessarily limited as a human person. But with other people, it's kind of like our views really expanded. You know, even when we're just looking out at a beautiful vista, you know, take, for example, um, on a mountainside or or um, anywhere else, or even just looking at a piece of art, um, other people see other things that we don't notice. Mm -hmm. And they can point those out that reflect their understanding, their capacity to see. And hopefully that would only aid and expand our own vision. Um, so when we're as a, as a community, um, not only learning from the past and looking to the past, but with open eyes, looking together towards in the present and towards the future, we're, we're growing um, together by learning from each other. I think that's one of the keys is really being able to learn from each other, um, but at the same time being grounded in a tradition um, that, that really has, is, is based on the truth that God has revealed to us and, and the development of that truth, which he brings up in this chapter. You know, that's, that's a good, a good uh, kind of like basic groundwork because whatever we're discerning, you know, like even the very principles that we use, we inherited. We didn't dream up something for ourselves in isolation somewhere. We learned it through the church. And I think too often, probably this wouldn't be so much of a problem in, in a world that wasn't so universally uh, literate and educated. But in today's world, it can often seem that the individual could just sit down with you know, the Bible and church documents and stuff and, you know, learn for themselves and then, you know, make the right judgments about it. And that's, you know, for one thing, it's, it's missing the fact that the, the, those texts themselves, the Bible, the other church documents are all products of the church, of the community. And that they're only, you know, like they are the inheritance of that community. None of them were designed for individual ownership. Obviously, they were, you know, like individuals can and should be reading the Bible, reading the lives of the saints, reading the documents of the church, all this wealth of the tradition, but they're to be used within that context. It's just amazing, like thinking about like St. Paul's letters to these churches, and he's, he's, you can tell at various points, he's imagining that they're going to be read aloud in the community and also that yeah like without without guidance the individual conscience can go wrong really quickly and that's why you know all the the private revelation that's done so much to enrich our catholic tradition it's always subjected to a final test of whether the church approves it or not because yeah the the individual is doesn't have the same level of guidance that the community has been promised by Christ that, you know, 
he always says like where we're where we're gathered together he's there in the midst of us um and and will speak to us through the voices of others within the community yeah that's um a great point it, it, i think it's sometimes you know with all due respect to our brothers and sisters in the in the protestant world um it is i think a, a challenge and a problem for the protestant interpretation of um, the christian tradition in that they they really do look to the bible alone and they try to discern and understand simply through uh kind of like an individual engagement and learning of scripture uh, in which tradition is kind of um, not given the same degree of uh, authority and respect and influence and it and the problem with that is that everybody can come up with their own interpretation based on their own experience their own reading and when there are disagreements it's so easy to separate but in community and with proper authority i think that's a key point is that in the, in the catholic world we have authority that interprets it doesn't um tell us always how we should understand everything but it, it is like a, a foundation upon which we can build and uh, a touchstone in which we don't go astray. You know, it's kind of like this guiding compass that allows room for depth and understanding, but also kind of um, points away so that we don't, it's like guardrails, so that we don't fly off the highway. Um, I want to just also mention a, uh, just another point that you were bringing up about, well, something I was thinking about, Malcolm, was concepts. You know, there are concepts presented to us that are true in scripture and by the church, but they're primarily not learned intellectually. And I think this is such a key point and, the, and another necessary reason for the, the church as community and for us to live in and be in community, because we really, we learn like, just take for example, the Beatitudes. I mean, we, could, we can memorize the Beatitudes and know them by heart and think about them constantly, but we, we really learn the Beatitudes by witnessing their, um, you know, their, their reality in everyday life, you know, by somebody who is living them out. You know, it's like the concept of the beatitude, of each beatitude needs to be incarnate. It needs to take flesh in a person. It's like we see somebody who's poor in spirit that puts a face to it. It's like Jesus putting, you know, putting on flesh, you know, it's like the, the word becoming incarnate for us to see, to follow, to touch with our hands, as St. John says. You know, it's like we need physical examples to show us the way and the, the deeper meaning of words. You know, words alone can only take us so far. And that's why I think the tradition of the church plays such an important role. It's not, a, he says later in this chapter, it's not static. You know, it's not a museum. The tradition is ever growing like a tree, like it's, and it's alive. And that's the beautiful thing about scripture. It points to a living tradition. Like these things, um, the, the, the words and the writings of the New Testament were born out of a living tradition. It was like a testimony to something that was happening. And in the New Testament, St. Paul talks about imitation, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate those who are observing a pattern of life that is found in me and the other apostles. So I think that's such an important point is like, um, we, we learn through example, lived example, and concepts, unless they take flesh, they can become almost idolized. And I think that connects to a point he brings up later with fundamentalism. If, you know, we can just kind of idolize concepts 
but we don't we don't actually uh, see the deeper meaning in all of them, or we don't allow them to have room and space in which we can they can further grow. Um, we can be we can be we can become stuck with a particular interpretation. Unless unless the concepts are in flesh, they're not much use, and that's what um, Saint John Henry Newman talked about with uh, real and notional knowledge. That if we you know, we could have notional knowledge, we could be able to rattle off all the Beatitudes, um, purely intellectual, theoretic knowledge, and that's, you know, valuable in a sense, but it's it can only take on life, it can only move people towards a metanoia and a conversion of life if it is enfleshed in real experiential knowledge. Uh, he said, so like he said, um, an example of notional knowledge is two plus two equals four, you know. Whereas, or, or that like he knows that, um, you know, like some historical character in the past existed. Whereas he knows the existence of his parents in a real kind of knowledge, an experiential kind of knowledge. It's much deeper than, say, his knowledge of that some historic character did exist. And he says we, we have to strive in our Catholic faith, in our Christian life, to have the real knowledge. And you can only find that in the community of the church. And then, you know, going back to what you were saying, I think, you know, thinking about like the, the Protestant emphasis, because of course they do emphasize personal discernment. And I think in one sense, what we see there in that split between the Catholic and Protestant traditions is kind of a tragic split where, you know, the, the pre-modern church did not always allow for the idea of personal discernment was perhaps a little too, formalistic in what it was teaching to um, top down. And so then in reaction to it, we have the, the other side, an, an overemphasis of, you know, the personal, the personal relationship with Christ, the personal interpretation. And these are two segments that need to, that need to go together as in any schism. Um, you know, a, a schism in the church is always like a tearing apart of values that should be uh, one that should be united. And that's of course why, like that's why we can learn from one another because we each have certain aspects of the tradition that we do really well and certain aspects of the tradition that we perhaps struggle with. And that's why we can learn from the people on, on both sides of these kind of historic splits, because we can learn from how well each, each, uh, each side enfleshes a certain component and I, I was thinking too, you know, you know, you're talking about, yeah, the in, the isolated conscience leads to division, and um, and of course that's what we see right here in, in our Catholic Church as well. That you know, part of the backdrop to let us dream is is intense division in the Catholic Church, driven by an isolated conscience. I'm thinking about both um, from the more progressive side back when Humanae Vitae came out, the Church's teaching on contraception, and a lot of progressive Catholic thinkers rejected it precisely by appealing to the private conscience discernment. Uh, they said that, you know, if, if an individual discerns that this teaching wasn't for them, then they were free to disagree. And, but today at the same time, uh, you know, from the more conservative side, we see the individual conscience, again, the private discernment being uh, appealed to, to reject Pope Francis. If, if an individual thinks that that's correct. And as a matter of fact, you know, like, sitting down with the Bible is one thing, but I've seen where more uh, 
conservative or traditionalist Catholics are saying that, you know, an educated Catholic can sit down with, you know, like the documents of the Council of Trent or something and apply their discernment to tell if the Pope's a heretic or not. And, and so like, you know, Pope Francis is, I think a little later in this chapter going to talk about how, yeah, like these, these two different, these different groups within the church, progressive groups, traditionalist groups, they all appeal to, in the end, appeal to their own private judgment outside of the community that could give that discernment context and keep it from going astray. And then they close, then they, then they divide, they close in on themselves and tear apart the body of Christ instead of contributing their vision, contributing their expertise, contributing whatever it is that they particularly value to the whole to build it up. I think that's a great point. And it's a kind of a, a fruit of American culture right now is the individualism and the isolation and people interacting from those places, creating division, as opposed to in, in coming together in community, we, um, we learn, we grow, we go forward by hearing what other people have to say, um, but also like holding that within a balance of what the, the church overall is saying and teaching how the Pope is moving us forward. Like everything's kind of in conversation, but balanced, you know, like we, we're not on the same plane as the Pope, you know, it's like our opinions about church, you know, in a way, I mean, they're not, it's like they, they, they don't trump the Pope's. Um, and so I, I think it, there's, there's of course still room for us to, to understand and to share and to grow. And I think that's what the Pope is inviting right now with the, the process, the synodal process in which he's inviting dialogue and conversation at the local level of the church so that um, we may hear from each other, learn and grow from each other in conversation with the church as a whole and the teaching of the church and the direction of the church. Um, so we're really doing this as a body. It's kind of a beautiful thing, in my opinion, you know, like as a family, because the times right now are really demanding that, you know, it's something he says is like, we're living in a time of crisis and trial and the old ways of navigating through the world um, are no longer really, um, I, I, he didn't say relevant, but they're kind of out of date in a way, you know, they're, they're not really, we need to be able to see with new eyes the, the truth and the revelation that's been given to us and, and interpret it and translate it into a time that is fresh, especially for the young. For a lot of young people, they're having a hard time connecting with the language and the teaching of the church, or at least the interpretation of church teaching. And I think that's um, what Pope Francis is also trying to get at, you know, and, but also to let their, their voices be heard. Um, yeah, I just, I, I do want to bring this up before we keep going forward, because I think it's such an important point is, uh, just this first page. I mean, he, he lays out so much here, uh, Malcolm, Pope Francis, you know, when he says a time of trial is always a time of distinguishing the paths of the good that lead to the future from other paths that lead nowhere or backward with clarity, we can better choose the first. And then he says for the second step which is the step of discernment and choosing, we need not just an openness to reality, but a robust set of criteria to guide us, knowing that we are loved by God, called to be a people in service and solidarity. And as you mentioned already, we need a healthy capacity for silent reflection, places of refuge from the tyranny of the urgent. Most of all, we need prayer 
to hear the prompts of the spirit and cultivate dialogue, as you mentioned, uh, in a community that can hold us and allow us to dream. So there's so much, I know we've been talking about this, but there's so much here to unpack, you know, and it, it reminds me of when I was in college and becoming aware of um, so many social ills and injustice, inequalities, um, spiritual unease uh, within myself and in the community that I belong to, I was kind of led to, it, in the need to find clarity, in the need to distinguish my own path going forward, it was almost like I was led to find places of silent reflection. He says, places of refuge from the tyranny of the urgent. So that's the other side of the coin here, Malcolm, at least for me, is that while we, we need to dialogue in community, we also need like a healthy separation from the norms and the trends of our culture in particular, which so much of the, the church is unfortunately wrapped up in, involved in and reflecting. You know, we need, we need a healthy separation so that we can, we can not only see these patterns more clearly, it's kind of like stepping, stepping away from a humongous piece of artwork in order to see the whole. If you're, if you're up too close, you can't really distinguish anything. You might just see a lot of colors. You might see like just, you know, a particular image right away, but in able to step back, you can see the whole, and then you can really discern and distinguish particular trends that you couldn't see before. I think in our culture right now, that is a, a huge element that we need to recover. It's a place of places of prayer, times and places of prayer that allow for silent listening to the word of God. Lexio Divine is a great example, you know, spending time with scripture, not simply to analyze and to, um, you know, figure it out, but to let God basically speak to us, uh, speak into our hearts through, through these timeless words that he has given us, you know, speaking into our hearts and into the current context. You know, it's like all of scripture can speak into the context of the times. It can shed light. It can, it can reveal things that are happening and, and make us more aware and understanding of um, our own situation in the world. So I, I just think it's important for us to emphasize that, like, in order to go forward right now to discern, yes, we do need to, um, we need to cultivate capacity for silence. And that's not just an individual affair. That's definitely a corporate affair. Uh, I, I've participated over the years in, in group Lexio Divinas, and it's beautiful to hear how God speaks to people in a group setting um, through scripture, you know, in, in a prayerful way you know, hearing what, uh, you know, everybody kind of hears something different often. But then sometimes we all are in agreement about what we're being, what we're hearing. And, you know, uh, just also to be aware of this tyranny of the urgent. It's such a beautiful phrase. Like, I, like there's so much running around in urban, suburban, Phil, uh, I was going to say Philadelphia, but, you know, the whole country. It's just like, people running around left and right, one activity after another, one um, event, one consumerism, you know, it's just, it, it can be continuous, our lifestyle, the, the pace of life can be so continuous that we, we really don't take the time to listen. And we're, and we're kind of just like running around in circles, just like the rest of the culture and not really listening God, to God, even though we might be going to church and saying our prayers and doing what we think needs to be done. But it, it's almost like, wow, we really do we need to, at this time, in order to see, take a step back and, and really look in order to, as he said, distinguish between different paths 
And in order to really cultivate a, a new path right now, Mal Malcolm, that you're that you're trying to bring up um, with uh, Happy Are You Poor, it's almost like, I mean, you know, we need to be able to see what's happening in our culture right now and, and find other ways to go forward. Because obviously our, cul our culture, our country is not moving in that direction. Yeah, you know, Peter, I've also participated in, in that kind of group Lexio Divina, and it's it's really worthwhile for anyone who is who wants to try this out to read a passage of scripture together, to reflect on it, and then speak together about it. So you're right; like this pulling back is not like a pulling away from other people, although you know, like there's a place for that certainly for you know silent retreats for private prayer. But also, I do think it's important to pull groups of people away from. Yeah, that the tyranny of the urgent. And one thing, when you were talking about stepping away from the big pictures so that you could see it better, one thing I think that happens, at least as I'm kind of watching like the Catholic dialogue on social media and through like the blogosphere, is that when some event occurs, everybody has to react in about 10 minutes because they want to claim the narrative for like their group. So it ends up being that each, you know, faction within the church or within the country ends up seeing events only through the lens of how this will further their narrative, their party, their event. That the, the event itself in all of its complexity can't be seen because people have to quickly appropriate it, um, either to, you know, like if it's going to be damaging for their cause or their tribe to try to do damage control, if it's going to be beneficial to use it to the utmost. You know, obviously... There can be an element of that, but the event itself is not about, uh, generally, about what it's going to do to your group. Like, I don't know, I was struck by that after uh, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine two weeks back. It was like that was like seemed to be at the forefront of many people's minds is how does this fit into, into my group's narrative? How we're, what's, what is going to be the spin, you know? And, and so with a little more time and reflection, the reaction to events could be a lot deeper and not so colored by, yeah, your own particular little square of the bigger picture. And, you know, I'm thinking too, okay, so like moving a little further down this first page. Uh, so, okay, so we have to, you know, dialogue with one another. We need to discern in a communal way. And he goes on to say, this is, this is a good quote. He says, it amazes me when I hear people talk of non-negotiable values. All true values, all human values are non-negotiable. Can I say which of the fingers on my hand has more value than the others? If it is a value, it has a value that cannot be negotiated. So, you know, like in one sense, this might almost seem like the opposite of dialogue, at least in the way it's often understood. We're not supposed to like come up with compromise positions or conflate things but in in dialogue dialogue should be about coming to a better appreciation and a, and a more shared appreciation of the values we're not we're not negotiating which you, know, you drop this value i drop this one but we're all talking together so that we can come to better understand as a group these values that are already in place for us that's a great point malcolm it goes back to i think something earlier that i was saying is that we've really our understanding of what matters, what we value, what we've been raised with, what the church teaches, it grows in relationship. It grows in conversation. It grows in interaction. 
I mean, everything healthy that is alive in, in, create, in the created world is in relationship and depends on other things for its own growth. And so when we, when we like narrowly cling to our own understanding of any particular value, it, it really lessens. And it kind of, I, he, he says it dries up and withers, you know, uh, a tree dries up and withers when it's separated from its roots. Um, so I think it's the same for values. It's like, we need to be able to appreciate the experience of others, the, the sharing of others, the interpretation of values of others. Like I know there's a lot to learn from people of other religious backgrounds, you know, and, and sometimes they do things far better than we do as Christians. I mean, I, I just remember reading some reflections on hospitality in the Middle East and you know, hospitality among Muslims and in Islam and in other various you know, religions and how it's, it's very much emphasized and people are welcome. The stranger is very much welcomed. And even though that's in the Christian tradition, I think um, we, can, we can relearn a value that has been lost by observing it, by hearing from others and maybe even grow in our own understanding of a particular value. Another example is prayer. I think in the, in the Christian tradition, um, at least in the West, and I think this is important, like Western European uh, background, uh, we have a very active, mental, vocal, cerebral um, approach to prayer. You know, it, and that's what I notice at our churches, you know, rosaries, um, chaplets, novenas, um, people have their prayer books and they, and they go from one prayer to another and it's all good. You know, thanks be to God for all those things. It's a, the deposit of faith and the inheritance we have in our tradition. But at the same time, you know, um, wow, what, what can we learn from Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodox Christianity? And not only that, but Eastern Oriental religion in which silence plays a more important role in prayer. And that's in our own tradition. I mean, the mystics have emphasized that. Um, from one generation to the next, you know, the importance of contemplative prayer in which we become more silent and receptive before and in the presence of God, you know, in which we, we quiet our mind to receive more, to listen, and to just like bask in his presence and to, and to gaze upon our Lord and wonder. But that's a value that um, is not as expressed, uh, in, especially in America. And it's something we could very much learn from other people's. So um, that's another example, because I, I also, Malcolm, you know, in my own searching, my own spiritual seeking, I turn to the East, Eastern religion, to, for a deeper experience of God. And in a lot of ways, um, when I came back to the church, my experience of Eastern religion, my experience of, you know, quote unquote, meditation, and, um, and I, you know, I, I'm careful to even use that term. Um, because I think it has so many negative connotations, unfortunately, in the West. But it really deepened and developed my understanding of prayer, ultimately, when I kind of recovered uh, my Catholic faith. And so I think there are a couple examples of what you're talking about with, with values. It's kind of like we need to be grounded in our values, grounded in what's been revealed to us, as Pope Francis said, but open to um, a deeper understanding of that. It's almost like interpretation of scripture. It can always grow. It can always develop. That's a, that's a, a principle of St. Augustine is that the, the meaning and depth of scripture could never be exhausted because scripture is a reflection of the word of God and the word of God is eternal and infinite. And so our finite minds cannot grasp 
um, the infinite wisdom of God. So uh, to everything we could, and that I think to, to a large degree is what heaven will include is this ever deepening, ever growing, ever rejoicing um, understanding of the, the depth of the riches and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. You know, that, that, I mean, thanks be to God for what awaits us. And even now what we can embrace in our time here on earth, like this, this continual openness to understanding the, the beauty and majesty of God, which is always beyond us. That's something he, I, maybe he's quoting uh, St. John Henry Newman again, but that the truth is always beyond us. I mean, it's like, yes, it's been revealed to us and we can have an understanding of it, but always limited and finite. I mean, there's always an element of truth that because it truth is God, we can never fully grasp. And we're always growing in our, in our understanding of it. And as he says, it's like the truth uh, should, should possess us. It's not so much we possess the truth. It's the truth possesses us more and more. We become more and more living in the light of the truth. Yeah, I think too often there's the sense that we possess the truth. And I think that's where you get this idea. You get a either you get dialogue done wrong or you get a suspicion of dialogue because when you when you feel like you possess the truth and they're all, you know, like all the corners are tacked down, everything's there, then dialogue could only be a watering down of the truth, a giving up of some aspect of the truth that you've already got. But if the truth is something that you can always find more of, then dialogue is is always going to be helpful. It will help you to see, help hopefully help both participants in the dialogue see the truth more clearly. But yeah, if it's already if you already possess it all, then dialogue is at at best a waste of time. And so, as like over the next two pages, he's going to lay out his set of. He says, okay, so you know, like in our particular situation here in the world right now, what are the values? that we need to have to guide this discernment in this dialogue. And he says um, that Jesus gave us the Beatitudes and that the Beatitudes are reflected in Catholic social teaching. So um, we can we can talk more deeply about each of these, but I'm just going to go through these next two pages and quickly pull out each of the principles that he says are going to be important. So he's saying that these, these are the principles of, Catholic social teaching, the Beatitudes as applied, it would be, uh, puts first emphasis on the preferential option for the poor, talks about serving the common good, the universal destination of goods, the two principles of solidarity and subsidiarity that work together. And so those are like the, the basic, um, basic principles of Catholic social teaching. He says they should guide us. And what, what interests me here is like, you know, the Beatitudes are so far beyond any human values, even good human values. You know, like if you take, I don't know, Greek philosophy, for instance, and Aristotle's set of values of, of the virtuous and happy man, they don't look like the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes cut right against the grain of human striving altogether they like as one spiritual writer i know put it like they seem to be a manual for failure rather than success you know the poor you who weep now you who mourn the hungry um they are praising what seems like failure and so like when when pope francis says like the beatitudes are what guides us out of this crisis like 
I, I think there's a temptation in Catholic circles and Christian circles generally to say, you know, like the Beatitudes are very nice. And you know, like some people like St. Francis, you know, live them out. And that's, that's very nice too. But surely like they're not like practical. But Pope Francis is saying, no, these are like, these are the practical guides we need. So how can we see them? Like they are so, so different, so demanding. How can we see them as practical guides to the very concrete problems of the world right now? That's a great question. And I think I just really appreciate that point about the Beatitudes cutting against the grain of self-striving, human ambition. I mean, they really do turn the values of the world upside down and um, provide a recipe for, not for success in the worldly sense, but that's what's beautiful because our, our model and example is Jesus Christ crucified. I mean, he is, he is the savior of the world and those who have followed him have followed his example and, and have also appeared to be failures in the world, but in the age to come, well, they're glorified now in heaven, which is amazing. They have, and, and, you, and you consider their following, like their, their footprint upon the world. Think about the great saints, you know, what St. Anthony of the Desert inspired, what St. Francis of Assisi inspired in the world, and their, you know, their heritage in a way. Um, and then uh, and what the church has developed over years with its social services. Um, so even what appears to be a failure in the end triumphs the what appears to be a, a success in the world. I mean, as as St. Paul says, where are the worldly wise? You know, where are the powerful? Where are where are those who have succeeded in the world? Where are they now? And where is their voice? You know, so I, I think it's it's so important for us to. Uh, appreciate that you know it's like the Christianity is not a recipe for success but a, a different kind of success in, in the eyes of God which ultimately will have lasting effects and I think that's so important for us to remember like we may not in our in our humble daily tasks going about faithfully our work it may not appear like we're doing much but God is pouring grace upon our efforts and and blessing the world in ways we can't imagine and so that should give us a lot of hope you know, for to continue to be faithful, to persevere in our vocation, no matter how humble it is. I mean, just think about St. Therese and St. Faustina. St. Therese being a cloistered nun, and now she's a doctor of the church and patron of missionaries. I mean, how amazing is that? And, and around the world, she's invoked uh, for her intercession upon um, people's needs and, and enterprises. I mean, that's just, it's a beautiful thing, how God turns everything upside down. And those who are who are truly humble in this world with love for God, um, you know, blessed by God, they're blessed. But going back to your question, the, the practical element of Catholic social teaching. Well, just first of all, I just want to give thanks, you know, to God and 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 in, to the church and in the church for this beautiful heritage we have. You know, Malcolm, it's just like it's a beautiful thing that we have the Catholic social teaching that can help guide us and direct our affairs. And I think that's that's what one of the most important things is um, it's there to guide us. But unless we know about it, we it won't help us. I mean, a lot of people don't even know about Catholic social teaching. And so um, I think the first part of one of the first parts of, of an answer to your question is that we need to become aware of Catholic social teaching. We need to learn about it. We need to be educated in it. We need to, to read on some level the, the teachings of the church. You know, the encyclicals that have come out from the popes and familiarize ourselves with it 
and be and allow ourselves to be formed by it. And then um, again, it goes back to that idea that we can't just imbibe concepts because on paper it may seem very ideal, but then like, what does it mean to practically follow these teachings? Yes, we need to learn about them, but then then we can learn about various movements that I think um, have tried to put them into practice. And a great example is the Catholic worker movement. Um, there's Catholic social services. There's a, a multiple attempts in the Catholic world to put Catholic social teaching in practice. And every diocese should have outlets for the implementation of various works of mercy. Uh, and so I think we, we learn about Catholic social teaching more by um, embracing opportunities that are available to us to really encounter their reality, like a service trip, for example. But when we say the preferential option for the poor, like, you know, it's it's great to like donate money to the, to the poor, but like really to, to go and encounter their reality, to spend time with them, to to be with them, and then to come to know firsthand what their real what their needs are, to but but at the same time like to learn from them, you know, and and to grow in a relationship. Um, so anyhow, I think all of these concepts, Malcolm, a, a, we need formation on them. We need to learn. And again, that doesn't happen individually. I mean, it, it, it can happen individually, but it also happens corporately. Um, and, and learning about th things that are already in place where people are practicing these, you know, these principles. You know, uh, as, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about my interview with uh, Joshua Hearn from the Grace in Maine community. And two, two things, you know, you were talking about how, you know, the saints still have more lasting impact on the world, just in a practical sense, than the those who sought a path of worldly success. And you mentioned Anthony of the Desert, who is still inspiring people today and has inspired other saints through history. And who knows all what rippled from that. He helped to inspire Athanasius to uh, defend the proper understanding of the incarnation and the Trinity when it looked like the world was going to succumb to the Arian heresy. So he did so much and continues to do so much. And then, you know, his contemporary as a young man, he would have lived under the rule of the emperor Diocletian, who was the last great emperor of a combined Roman empire before it started splitting apart into East and West. And, you know, he's known for ferociously persecuting the Christians, but there's a lot more to him than that. He was like, in other ways, a fairly decent administrator, tried to keep up the the sense of, you know, the old Roman virtues and the old Roman order that were passing away. And, you know, nothing, nothing came of it. it. It all, it all crumbled away to dust now. And so in, in my interview with, with Joshua Hearn, he said, you know, God makes different kinds of plants and everybody wants to be a redwood, but nobody seems to want to be a cilantro plant. <laughs> And he said, you know, like when you're building community, that can be the temptation. He said, like, everybody thinks like in terms of worldly success, you know, like everyone imagines an enormous community with thousands of members that changes the history of the world. And he said, but actually, you know, like there are some redwoods out there, some redwoods of community like there. But, you know, maybe for you, God isn't intending to plant that, but that those other plants all have their usefulness that you might not understand, but that that's what God wants. God wanted Anthony to head out to the desert and live in a cave. It's like, well, you know, that didn't seem very useful, but that was, that was the call. And I was thinking too, you know, so like this first principle, uh, the preferential option for the poor, which is in some ways kind of the most basic and concrete because it's 
pretty much that is the Beatitudes, right? That the poor are blessed. And uh, Joshua Hearn was pointing out that there's all the difference in the world between caring for the poor in a material sense and being a community for the poor that puts them first. You know, like it's, it's a good thing to run food banks and soup kitchens and all that. But do we build, do we really put the perspective of the poor first? Like what would our community look like if, you know, the poor were the criteria by which we judged how this would affect the poor. And if we were the poor, (laughs) Joshua and I were talking about how, you know, there's many suburban churches that are pretty well-to-do and they channel a lot of time and energy and money into feeding the poor. And that's great. But on Sunday during worship, the poor are nowhere to be found because not that there's like guards at the door to throw them out, but just because everybody is so uh, dressed up and everything is so wealthy seeming that the poor are not comfortable. They're implicitly not welcome. And of course, St. James talks about this too uh, in his, his epistle. So what would it like, just imagine what it would, what it would take, what a difference it would make if we really were, as Pope Francis calls to be, a church for the poor, not just a church to, you know, feed the poor. Yeah, I mean, if if we were to take these principles seriously, these Catholic social teaching principles, I mean, they would radically reorient our our priorities, you know, altogether in our life, um, because they really. They call us to put the attention and the need of those more in need than ourselves before ourselves at the forefront of our attention. It's kind of like the weakest members in any situation, the weakest members need to be provided for first. It's like a a parents with a family. They're going to make sure that the littlest ones are cared for first, have their needs taken care of. I mean, how... (laughs) It would be quite shameful, right, for the for the father to to eat before you know the rest of his hungry little children. You know, it, it, it's befitting for a father to sacrifice for the sake of his children and those who cannot um, do for themselves or, or don't have as much at their disposal. So I think that's um, an important, like, really important point for us right now is that. Because we, it's so easy to forget about the needs of other people. We live in such a divided world and isolated world. And if you're out in suburbia like I am, um, you don't really see the, the plight of uh, those on the margins often. I mean, you hear about them and, they, and, you, and you hear uh, testimonies and you come across pamphlets talking about the needs of people all across the world. Um, but, but suburbia in a lot of ways is very much separated from the, the, the problems and, the, and the, the needs of other people. But I think that's just like, you know, in a healthy family, you're going to take care of those who are needed first because you love, everybody's loved. And I think that's how we need to see the church and the context of the Catholic social teaching is that um, the, the church teaches, you know, that everybody has an inherent dignity everyone is a part of the family of God or is called to be a part of the family of God. And therefore we have a responsibility for each other. And, and I think that's where the preferential option for the poor comes in is that, 
Well, if you're in a family that loves each other, you're going to take care of those who, who need it most first. Um, those who are, are taken care of already or, or who can take care of themselves don't need as much attention. And, not, and again, we have to be careful uh, about this. And, and Pope Francis brings this up, and you were, I think, just talking about this, Malcolm. But that we, it's not like we just do things for other people. Um, again, it's, it's about being in relationship, learning and listening, and hopefully walking with others. That's a great concept that Pope Francis has been emphasizing, accompanying others. You know, we are called to be men and women. I went to Jesuit schools, so we talk about being men and women not only for others, but with others, walking with others. We are, we are in this together. Um, and, and you, know, as, as, you know, as a response to what Cain said when he, when he slaughtered his brother, you know, am I my brother's keeper to God? Well, that's exactly what we're called to be, isn't it? We are called to be our brother's keeper. And really, uh, I say this to myself, and I think, you know, to all of us, it's like, woe to us if we, if we turn a blind eye to the needs of the world around us, like it really, it is, it is tough. You know, it's like, wow. Um, in, in the face of so much need in the world, like it makes me thinking about my, my little creature comforts, the things that I want in life, so unimportant and superfluous and selfish. You know, it's almost like because there's such an unequal division, there's a greater need and challenge and invitation from those of us who have more to give more mm-hmm. and to focus more on how we can how we can serve um, and to really try to put these in practice because not everybody is in a position to even know about these, let alone, you know, practice them on some level. Yeah, our, our lesser needs have to give way to the greater needs of others. Uh, that's what John Paul II said, you know we have to put their greater needs ahead of our own. And I'm thinking, you know, when we think about like putting the poor first, you know, part of that is obviously sacrificing money. But, and that's hard enough as it is to, to you know, convince ourselves that we should sacrifice money so that other people can live. But there's harder things to give up. And, and so like, here's a good example of where, uh, in my life where I saw the preferential option for the poor not being carried out. Um, I was at a, a church for an event and it was winter time and somebody came in off the street and fell asleep in the vestibule of the church. And whoever was in charge, I don't know who exactly was responsible, called the police to get the person thrown out. And when you think about like, you know, Christ is in the poor. So Christ, cold and tired. And again, there was no hint this guy was necessarily dangerous, right? And certainly like he's asleep. He's not like doing anything problematic at the moment anyway. Um, but yeah, like Christ came in cold and, and tired and he got thrown out by the police. And I don't know, it was, it was shocking. And yet like, okay, like on the one hand, there was like, you know, like the basic... Uh, you know, there was the concern about the insurance policy and the safe environment policy and the, the, this, that, and the other kind of policy. And there was the, but like, and sure, you know, like you don't want to run the risk of your church getting vandalized. And, but like, what if, what would it have looked like if instead there had been a call for volunteers here? Could we have two or three people that will volunteer to stay and pray in the church until this guy wakes up to make sure that, you know, 
nothing bad happens. And then maybe also to make sure that like to ask him when he does wake up, if he needs anything else before he goes on his way. Um, and then, you know, like then lock up the church, you know, when, when he's gone or, or like, like, in other words, like a, a giving up of convenience a giving up of like our basics, because again, like I, I know, you know, like the people who are there for this event, good people who donate generously. And, you know, like, like that's, that's good. That's like level one. Not everybody reaches level one of, of, donating to keep the poor fed and whatever but we have this expectation that that the poor can't be allowed to infringe on how we arrange our lives how we arrange our churches how we arrange how we how we manage things they're they're you know taking care of them is fine so long as they stay in their proper place and in this case this guy's proper place was not sleeping in the vestibule of the church um and that's and that's just wrong but you know, I don't know if, if the people involved that had heard of the preferential option for they might have. And again, they, as I said, I, I, I know all, at least a lot of the people who are present, people who would, would if, if they heard about the preferential option, it's like, well, yeah, you know, we give. But realizing, like, even to myself, like, how much do I actually allow the needs of the party to infringe upon my life? Not that much. Not that much. How, like do I really listen to the epistle of James when he talks about how we shouldn't have, you know, preferential treatment, but it's true. Like if somebody in ragged clothes walks in, people are going to be just kind of have this turn on this inherent little bit of suspicion in the back of their minds. Right. And, or like I've heard of things where like, you know, cathedrals in big cities have security trained that when homeless people walk into the cathedral, which is kept open, the security ushers them out. It's like, well, just because they're homeless, don't, don't they get to be in the cathedral? I mean, we're not talking about when they start vandalizing things, but they take like kind of like a preemptive policy. It's like those kind of people, we move them out of here. Um, again, like how how are we going to face the judgment if this is the mindset? But I can tell, you know, I'm affected by it. We're all affected by this idea that the last thing we could do is change the whole way we live to put the poor at the center. It makes me think, Malcolm, of like, who would be willing to take in a homeless person into their house? And shouldn't that be our attitude as Christians? Like if we were to find a homeless person at the church, you know, like would that we would vie for that, uh, for that to take in and care for the homeless person, because we would be doing, we would be serving Christ and, 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 you know, doing Christ this, uh, a, 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 well, I don't want to say, I guess, favor in a way, but by, by serving the, the poor, like, that's a great, like our, our attitude should be like, what an incredible blessing, what a great opportunity. But, uh, but in, in uh, opposition to that, like you said, we're, we're much more focused kind of on our own world and, and not allowing infringement upon anything that might threaten our security, our control, our, our preferred vision of the world, you know, like it reminds me of a, um, an instance at my home parish outside Philadelphia, where I remember um, for months, there was this homeless man traveling the, the, the churches. He would just go from one church to another and he would try to spend the night in perpetual adoration chapels. And I remember, I just felt like he was treated with such contempt. Um, and he, and he told me that, you know, it was like, he wasn't really welcomed. He wasn't accepted pastors began like booting him out you know um he he uh, of course was very ragged and, and and didn't smell well but like 
for months he traveled and not one person out of all these churches in, you know, well-to-do suburban Philadelphia took him in, you know, and I was like, wow, like if I, and I don't know if I would either, you know what I mean? I, I, I didn't have a place to do that on my own at the time, but, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm just as guilty. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, like, and I think it goes back to the importance of community, Malcolm, is like when you're in community, like um, the Bruderhof, you know, for example, you're, you don't have this personal insecurity because there's a, a communal ownership of everything. And so I think there's a greater freedom on the part of individuals to really welcome somebody. It's like, this is all of ours. You know, it's not just me, you know, thinking about how could this infringe upon my 10 year retirement plan and um, my personal inventory and, and my things, but it's like, wow, like this doesn't really belong to me. We all enjoy it. So, so should this person who is without, I mean, I think in community, there's such a greater freedom to welcome, to welcome the poor man. I, I do also, also want to just point this out though, because as we're talking about the poor, you know, quote unquote, the poor, we have to be careful because like, we're all poor before God and the poor in a lot of ways, um, can include, and I think this is, goes back to our earlier conversation, like, like expanding our understanding of the poor. You know, Pope Francis talks a lot about the, um, the tragedy of the, the elderly being isolated. Like, perhaps they could be included in the poor. Like, um, I think about individual elderly people who are, have been abandoned by families or not seen much by anybody, you know, um, or, or, or persons with disabilities, you know, who might have their physical needs provided for, but are not given a lot of attention. You know, so I think when we, when we talk about the preferential option for the poor, we don't want to, I mean, obviously um, a very, I guess, literal interpretation would just be those who are materially not, not, you know, well off, don't have what they need. But there's also this, you know, that the poor, this is great category of like all humanity, but all those who are, who are suffering, struggling, marginalized, despised, you know, um, that mm-hmm. we should have an option for, for all those people as well. I, oh, that's, that's so true. And, you know, especially the, the sick and disabled all too often, they are really, you know, like you said, that that homeless man, you know, was not treated with respect. They're not treated with respect in a Catholic parish too often. Uh, I know a, a friend of mine has children with autism and she told me that she's overheard. She takes them to mass. She's heard people saying, like, we don't want them around. But like, what would, what would Christ think? You know, like what would, who would Christ prioritize? You know, you think about that, that case in the synagogue where there's a man with the withered hand and they were all watching, right? It's like, is he going to heal him on the Sabbath? And what does he say? What's more important? Your, your little world that, that you constructed or healing this man? They thought it was their little world. And, you know, as you say, yeah, we're all guilty because we don't, allow it to disrupt. And I was thinking, well, as you were saying, like taking in the homeless, St. Basil the Great had a thing where he was saying, it isn't enough to donate to the church that they'll take in the poor. He said, because at that point, you know, like the early church had this concept of Christ room hospitality, keeping a room for Christ in your house in which you welcome Christ in the poor. And he said, and I guess at the time of St. Basil, that was beget, that practice was beginning to fall by the wayside in preference to giving more money to the church. And then the church would, in some kind of more institutionalized way, take care of the poor. And he said, well, like, of course, it's great, Basil said, that we've got, you know, a church uh, house for the poor, which is like, like, do we have that now? Like, 
not not as much as we should. But anyway, he was saying that's good, but it's better that each of you have a Christ room in your homes as well as this. Because when Christ comes, you know, you don't want to say, well, there's an agency that will see you down the road, you know. Uh, Dorothy Day talks about this too. And when you were talking about like, how much can you do, you know, like generosity is often like, well, I'll be generous so long as it doesn't infringe on my, um, you know, infringe on the way I run my life. And I remember uh, Father um, Father Dubay in, in Happy Every Poor, where we get the name for this website, he talked about this hypothetical couple and they hear a appeal for donations to the missions at mass. And on the way home, they say, how much can we afford? And they come to the conclusion that they can afford 25 extra dollars beyond their usual contribution to, to give to this missionary appeal. And he said, like, people would think that was generous. But the problem is, he said, what they actually mean is, how much can we afford without selling our sports car, without cutting into our budget for clothes, without cutting into, without in any way infringing on what we do? What is su- superfluous, yeah, like the excess as opposed to the poor widow who put in all she had, you know, those that two cents, which was more valuable before the eyes of God. As a, as a contrast to maybe sometimes like focusing on what we as a church are not doing, I do want to highlight just from a story of mine, a personal experience, a great blessing that I received in a, in a time of need when I was traveling as a quote unquote poor pilgrim. Um, I know we wanted to, we talked about this before, Malcolm, maybe, you know, doing some travelogue episodes. But there was a time when I was traveling as a pilgrim and I was making my way into North Carolina. I was walking and I was really relying on people to provide for my needs as I traveled. And I really just traveled from one town to the next and and more than just one town, one church to the next, one parish. I just found out where's the next church and that's where I'm going. And thanks be to God, I, I did find hospitality. I did find a lot of kindness and warmth People took me into their homes. And there was this particular time when I was on the road and it was a Saturday and I was, you know, it was like 25 miles to the particular church and I was getting really close and I was really excited. I was like just a few miles away. I was going to make it for the evening mass. And I I had, I actually knew of the priest who was uh, the pastor at the parish. So I was really excited that I was going to hopefully be welcomed. And um, as I was making my way to the church, I came, I was pretty rural, a dog burst out of the woods. I mean, it just burst out of the woods, bent on destroying me. I mean, it was just, uh, it was kind of a scary sight. It, it was something of a pit bull. I don't know what, exactly what it was. But anyhow, it came bursting straight at me. I was a little bit nervous to say the least, but it did go behind me and I was like, oh, okay, well maybe it'll just stay behind me and bark and I'll just keep walking on, keeping my eyes on the Lord. And before I knew it, it, it had latched on with its jaw to my leg. And that was uh, alarming, to say the least. No one was around. And I was like, you know, try to get in this little fight with this dog. Eventually, the dog, I mean, not long after, the dog did let go of its uh, bite on my leg. But it left a pretty deep gash in my leg. And I was bleeding uh, pretty profusely. And just as, as that was happening, the neighbor drove in. And I kind of waved them down. I said, hey, I just I was just attacked, you know, and they they were like, oh, it's the neighbor's dog again. Like, you know, that damn dog, it's uh, it's taken off. It's taken out bikers along the road. You know, it's, it, they need to chain it up or something. So apparently this dog has done this before. Um, but anyhow, they, they helped me. They gave me some um, 
they gave me some, you know, like uh, rags and things like that to at least stop the bleeding. And they dropped me off at the church where no one was yet there uh, because I couldn't really walk. You know, I was really uh, knocked out. But I got to the church. I was all bloody. I was I was quite a sight, you know, right outside. I was just waiting outside the front doors for the church, the pastor to open the doors. And he came and he, and he heard about what I told him what happened. And he introduced me to the whole church um, during mass. You know, I had my leg up. I had like all these, you know, towels on me trying to keep the blood down. And what was beautiful, Malcolm, was that, um, you know, he told everybody about my situation. A doctor was there and he and he came to me right after church and said, listen, I'm, I'm with my family. We were planning on going out, but I, I, I want to take you to my office and, and clean you and treat your wounds. I mean, it was very much like the uh, the, the man who, who fell by the wayside to robbers um, on his way to Jericho. You know, the story that Jesus recounts, like I was just in bad straits and, and, and it's good Samaritan, even though he was a, a, a Catholic man, he took me in his whole family. They drove me out to their doc, his doctor's office and treated me and gave me everything I needed. And before that, a woman came up to me and said, I know the doctor's going to take you to, um, to treat you and get you cleaned up but uh, I'd like to invite you to come back to my house and spend as much time as you need to recover until you're well again to take take to the road. And I was just so humbled by that. I was like, wow, you know, like she didn't even know me. I was, I, I was quite a sight, you know, and I was all shabby, of course, traveling on the road. And she, um, you know, out of the goodness of her heart took me in and, and literally it took me over a week. I stayed a, a week at her house to really get well enough to walk again. I mean, that's how much this dog kind of, <laughs> you know, did a number on me. So um, it's just, it is happening, Malcolm, you know, it's like, people are taking people in and especially when they're, um, I guess, exposed to the opportunity, you know, and I think that's often, sometimes one of the dangers is that in our isolation, we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to do good. You know, it's like the, um, the gated communities are not going to, to encounter a pilgrim traveling on the road because he can't even get into their community. Um, and there's, there's a passage in scripture that talks about that. You know, it's like, woe to you who like, you know, build house upon house and, and separate yourselves. Mm-hmm. But um, I do, I do, I do appreciate that. Like in my travels, how much hospitality I received, how much kindness, people welcoming me into their homes. So um, we don't want to be dis- discouraged too much. You know, right. it's like, there's a great heart out there in the church. It's just, again, how do we continue to channel it and, and challenge ourselves to to take it to the next level and to really embrace and, and really to to like define our lives or, or to orient our lives around these teachings i mean it, it means it'll be a, a totally different life i mean i think your interviews with the catholic catholic worker houses are really revealing that to the to the catholic world I mean, it's beautiful what how these families and, and individuals together are trying to um live a christian life in community that embraces a different set of values that are and they're completely uh, countercultural to the world. Yeah, I think that my interviews with some of these Catholic worker communities really do show like what it would look like. And as you say, they're out there. They're they're doing this. The the Simon Ve House is really running what they call a public household, where people are welcome to drop in to do laundry or take showers, where they're they're housing, I think about ten people at, at present, and you know, they're, they're have this openness to their surrounding community that their house is not their house. It's the community's house. It's everyone's house for, for the good of all, as you said, yeah, they're out there. And that was certainly a very good, uh, 
good story of, you know, being hospitable to, to the wayfarer. And, and so I guess, you know, like to, to close on kind of a practical note, you know, listen to those episodes with the Catholic worker. And if you're not called at the, right at the moment, which you may not be to, you know, like take some in and reflect, how could you somehow change your life to center it a little more on the preferential option for the poor, anyone who is in some way marginalized, the elderly, those without material resources, the disabled, how could you somehow change your life to orient it towards them instead of expecting them to take, you know, the, the marg take to take the leftover that doesn't infringe upon your life. So yeah, thanks Peter for, for joining me for another conversation and, uh, in another few weeks, we'll have another episode up to continue with chapter two of Let Us Dream. Thanks, Malcolm. And thanks for all that you're doing with Happy Are You Poor. Really uh, blessed, blessed to be a part of it. Yeah, thanks for all your help. <laughs>